What I think the United States needs to do is to re-engage, particularly with market economy countries, Europe, for example, with Japan, and re-engage in Asia, for example, through the old TPP, and effectively rebuild a new trade regime from the bottom up. There is nothing more important. Our bona fides globally stems from our economic strength. Put the military aside, that's long since been factored into the equation. Our economic strengths are what people are looking at now. It's absolutely critical that we get our act together at home. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Ambassador Charlene Barshevsky. Charlene served as a U.S. trade representative from 1997 to 2001, during which time she negotiated hundreds of complex market access, regulatory, and investment agreements with virtually every major country in the world. Notably, she was the architect and chief negotiator behind China's historic entry into the WTO. She now serves as a senior international partner of the law firm Wilmer Hale. Charlene, welcome to the podcast. I'm a real admirer of yours, so I'm looking forward to today's discussion. But let's start near the beginning. Like me, you're a Midwesterner and an Illinoisan. Talk a bit about your upbringing in Chicago and how you developed your interest in public policy. So my upbringing was, I think, uh, fairly conventional for that place and time. My parents were both immigrants, my father from Russia, my mother from Poland. They met in Chicago uh, in high school. They went to different high schools, but they met at a dance and they ended up uh, getting married and raising three children. And the family was quite typical of uh, immigrant families at that time, extraordinary emphasis on education and learning and the importance of community service and philanthropy. We didn't have a lot of money, but my parents were exceptionally generous to those in need, uh, as well as, of course, to the three of us uh, children. Went to the University of Wisconsin for college in uh, Madison, which was a wonderful experience then law school, and went on from there. I think my interest in public policy can be attributed to Richard J. Daley, the mayor of Chicago when I was growing up, when you were growing up. Uh, he was mayor for a long time. I used to love watching him. I actually studied him quite a bit, read a lot about him, watched him very carefully when he spoke. I didn't always like his policies, but I was always struck by his use of his position of power in order to make change. So the change may have been negative from the point of view of some people, may have been positive from the point of view of others. That was, from my point of view, quite beside the point. He simply used his position to effect change. And the kind of change he effected was critical to the life of the city of Chicago. So. In looking at that, I realized growing up that if you really want to see change happen, and if you want to contribute, uh, you need to be in a position to lead. 
doesn't have to be mayor, could be something very small, but leadership matters if you want to affect policy. And so that's where it sprung from. It's fascinating that you say that because I've always thought the terrific leaders are people like you who define their job expansively. They're always asking when they take on a new position, what can I do to make a real difference? How do I get over all the various barriers that may confront me? And you know, no one defined their job any more expansively than Richard Daly. And of course, in mayors, there's a really big difference in leadership in a very short time. And, you know, living in Chicago, I've, I've just seen the ups and downs in the way the city runs, depending on who the mayor is. So that, that's a very interesting story. Now let's talk about trade, which is where you made a real difference. So what is driving the domestic and global skepticism about the benefits of trade? And what can we do to address legitimate concerns here while avoiding harmful economic isolationism? That's the big issue that all sorts of people are discussing today. So there's so many factors that weigh on public perception of trade. And I'll list a couple, but preface that list by saying that trade is critical to the economic health of our country. Between a quarter and a third of our GDP is trade dependent. That's a huge loss to the country, to growth, to opportunity to the extent the United States pulls away from trade. And when you look at polling data, I think people appreciate the importance of trade and generally are pro-trade, except for some downside factors, which I'll get to in a second. But I think, first of all, trade intensifies competition. And everyone loves competition, but not when it affects them in particular. So trade heightens competitive impacts. Second of all, trade, of course, can put pressure on jobs, especially if you're in an import-sensitive industry. These are often commodity industries where all that matters is price. I think third, trade and trade effects are often confused with technology and the effects of innovation on productivity and on jobs. So by far the single largest disruptor of jobs in the United States is technology and innovation, the productivity increases they create, and the fact that you need a lot fewer workers for the same output. Trade is also a factor in jobs, particularly, as I said, in import-sensitive industries, but it is a small factor relative to the impacts of technology uh, on trade. I think fourth, the benefits of trade are widely diffused in an economy. Trade increases aggregate GDP of a country. But when it comes to spreading those benefits around in a country, that's domestic policy. That's what the Congress does or what the president does. It is not trade per se. And I think the public often confuses trade with a failure of domestic policy to more equitably share the benefits of aggregate growth for the country. 
And by benefits or sharing benefits, I mean, for example, healthcare or education or portability of pensions, basic things that are the province of domestic policy, not international uh, policy. And last, of course, I would say the rise of China and the increased competitive pressure brought about by that. And the fact that people tend to conflate China with trade. And if they're at all uncomfortable about China, they're also uncomfortable about trade. So I think all of these factors bear on the public perception. You know, Charlene, I agree with every word you said, and you said it very well. But the challenge we're all going to have is how to get that message out so it resonates publicly, it resonates politically, because trade, I think, is being unfairly scapegoated, and it's very hard to defend it on a three-by-five card message. So it's, it's a real challenge. Let's now, you focused on the domestic side. Let's move to the international. As you know, the system of rules-based trade was largely built to U.S. specifications, and it seems to be unraveling now. Tariffs are becoming normalized, and regulations, product standards, and other non-tariff barriers have become the protectionist tool of choice. Our global institutions are failing. How did it come to this? Well, this has actually been going on for some time. I think you have to start with the global financial crisis, 2008-2009, and the fact that the United States was in economic turmoil, as was uh, the rest of the world. Countries began to impose protectionist measures to protect their own markets. Those measures were designed to be temporary. For many countries, they became permanent. And once a country starts down that road, those kinds of measures often proliferate almost always to the destruction of economic growth in the country. But it has political resonance, and leaders believe then that they're doing something. I think also there's been a lack of U.S. leadership in the WTO. You have a very long, failed Doha round of negotiations, which would have spurred further growth and modernized the rules of trade, which is badly needed. But U.S. leadership certainly today is completely absent. You have, I think as well, the rise of China, the fact that you have a state-owned model, which is actually antithetical to the rules of the global trading system and which corrodes that system in very serious ways. That uh, limits the possibility of cooperation, which is unfortunate, but it also further intensifies skepticism toward the WTO and whether there's any way to discipline that kind of behavior. And last, there is, as you know, a growing preference for regional trade agreements, for bilateral trade agreements, for plurilateral trade agreements, for every kind of agreement other than a multilateral agreement. Countries perceive they have more leverage in smaller groups. They perceive they're with like-minded as opposed to a cacophony of countries and noises in the WTO. The difficulty with where we are, though, is that the atomization of trade globally will lead to the balkanization of trade, 
That'll have impacts on technology, on investment and capital flows, none of which is good. If you're a country like the United States with 4% of the world's population, where you need a large global market that is conducive to your economic interests. So the crumbling, if you will, or sort of the weakness of the multilateral system really is a function of all of these factors and is not in the United States' interest. So given that, what do you see as the future of the WTO? Can it be saved? Well, I think it can be saved, but it might have to be saved in a rather roundabout way. In the WTO, which operates by consensus, consensus has always been defined as unanimity. Every country has to agree. Well, when you have 160 plus countries, not every country will agree, and that gives countries effectively veto power. So what I think the United States needs to do is to re-engage on a regional basis, as well as a bilateral basis, particularly with market economy countries, Europe, for example, with Japan, and re-engage in Asia, for example, through the old TPP, and effectively rebuild a new trade regime from the bottom up taking those practices and that learning to the WTO to try and force, if you will, force modernization and force consensus. Because where we are now is in a very dangerous place with respect to global trade. And because of this view that everything in the WTO has to be done by unanimity, the only way, other than deciding the WTO would proceed by vote, the only way is to step outside the WTO, rebuild a consensus on trade piece by piece, bring that back to the WTO, and use those elements as a push for modernization. You know, as you think about it, it's really not that surprising that the WTO, like so many others of our multilateral institutions, needs to be updated because the world has changed a lot in the last 10 or 20 years. Obviously, China's changed a lot. The U.S.'s role in the world has changed. And so it's, it's really important to, to update our institutions so that they reflect today's world. And so now talking about today's world, let's focus in on China. As I mentioned in my introduction, you were the U.S. trade rep when the U.S. and China negotiated the terms of China's entry into the WTO. We both believe this was the right thing to do to bring China into the global trading system and that the U.S. benefited, even if those benefits weren't distributed evenly. So what has gone wrong? What has changed? Why has there been so much criticism? I think what's changed is far more on the China side of the equation than on the U.S. side. So when China entered the WTO in 2001, it was on a convergent course, or largely convergent course, with Western market economics. That was the nature of the commitments made. It was the nature of market opening. And that was to extend and deepen China's own internal reforms, which were also taking their cue from Western economic models. Well, convergence or greater compatibility is terrific. You never get sameness out of countries and certainly not from China. 
But anything that helps smooth the rough edges out is extremely important when you're dealing with such large countries. But about 2007 or so, China's economic model began to diverge from Western market economics. And under Xi Jinping, that divergence has been cemented, effectively cemented, through a reversion, not to market economics, but state-led capitalism, to subsidies, to all of the various practices that have been so much in the news. And that creates not only friction, because the economic models are very different, but China's model has left many Western countries, not just the U.S., with the view that there is no mutuality with respect to trade. China's market opening and reform, which began to sputter in 2007, has effectively stopped until very recently and then only in a very limited uh, way. And of course, the view as well that there was somehow no way to discipline China no way to get China to turn back around. And I think all of that led people to say, well, they shouldn't have been in the WTO, which is an entirely nonsensical proposition when you consider that it was the WTO that first opened China's market. I think it's important to remember that China is the world's second largest importer, just right behind the U.S., so it was the WTO that opened that market. The question now, looking ahead, is how does this non-market system work in connection with Western economies that are far more open and far more receptive to foreign participation than China has become? That is, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, but I want to agree with something that you said, because while you were, you know, leading the negotiations surrounding China's entry into the WTO, I was an investment banker working in China and actually meeting quite regularly with the premier Zhuangzi, with Jiang Zemin, who was a general party secretary at that time, president of the country. And one thing I can assure you that they were looking toward a model. They weren't trying to emulate the U.S. They weren't trying to develop a capitalist system like, like we had, but they definitely believed in market-driven competition. And Zhu Ranji despised monopolies and the state-owned enterprises. And I watched the way he approached not only their banking reform, but the SOE reform, and the pain that they went through in laying off literally hundreds of thousands of people and wanted competition. And I've talked with him since. That's what they, so they were clearly headed in that direction. And the WTO negotiations was a lever that the reformers used to open up their economy. But as you said, that was then and this is now. And we're dealing with a dramatically different China than we were 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago, or even five years ago. So how do we approach our trade relationship with China now? How do we protect our national security 
not only our national security, our economic security, while advancing our economic interests proactively. What do we do? So I always like to start with the United States first off. First way of dealing with China is by strengthening ourselves. There is no more important factor in our success in the global economy than the United States of America and its homeland. So we need to look at our policy failures, which are many, including with respect to infrastructure, with respect to innovation and R&D, with respect to labor force and skills development, many, many features, and correct those, correct those. There is nothing more important. Our bona fides globally stems from our economic strength. Put the military aside. That's long since been factored into the equation. Our economic strengths are what people are looking at now. And we are not as economically strong as we had been. So I think that it's absolutely critical that we get our act together at home. Doing that helps as well in our competition with China. Rekindling our alliance structure helps with respect to our competition with China because if we are strong internationally, including through our alliances, which is the purpose of our alliances, this puts us in a more positive position with respect to China, and it increases our leverage, which is important in international affairs. Third of all, we have to decide that China is not an enemy. I can't imagine a single interest of the United States that's furthered by considering or making China an enemy. And to be frank, I can't think of a single interest of China's that is furthered by making or creating the United States as an enemy. So I think we need to step back in terms of our rhetoric and really decide what is it? What is it that are the problem areas that we need to correct, most especially to preserve our national security. Here, there are two basic approaches in my view. One is the meat axe, which I don't recommend. And the other is to do what you always did, Hank, in business, which is risk management. What is the precise risk we're concerned about? Is it in a particular technology? It is with a particular country. What is the precise risk? What is the quantum of risk? Can we mitigate the risk? Do we not care as much about the risk? All of life is risky. Do we not care as much? But we need to not think of ourselves as severing relations with China to protect national security. We need to think of strategically and narrowly disentangling those areas or elements where disentanglement would be beneficial and protective of us, but leave the rest alone. So I think that one thing to think about as we move forward with China is how best to preserve our economic interests, how best to get along sufficiently well with China as a general matter, that is to say, no enemies, nobody needs enemies, and third, 
how best do we protect national security? And in my view, all of that suggests that there are ways of dealing with China that can be extremely successful for the U.S., but that require much more time and attention and care with respect to detail than what we have today. Amen. Because there are areas where we need to disentangle or decouple, but that needs to be done very, very carefully in understanding what the impact is on the United States of America and what we're able to accomplish. Because if we try to decouple to too great an extent, the rest of the world is not going to be decoupling. And we're going to end up isolating ourselves. And as a nation, as you said so convincingly early on, a nation with 4% of the world's population, the idea of us isolating ourselves or doing things that are going to isolate ourselves from not only China, but from big parts of the world market would not be a very smart thing to do. So Charlene, now with a perspective of some time and distance, I'd like you to reflect on your career from really two standpoints. What's your biggest regret and what contribution from your government service gives you the most satisfaction as you look back? Biggest regret is that I was unable to push the Clinton administration into accepting an initiative called the P5. P5 stood for Pacific Five, and it was the concoction of the Australian trade minister at the time and me. And the idea behind it was to further embed the United States in Asia by creating a free trade agreement between the U.S., and the countries, particularly of East and Southeast Asia. The view in the U.S. administration at the time was we had done so much on trade, which at that time was uh, not always applauded by the president's party, that we just couldn't do anything more. And so the remnant of P5 was the initiation by us of free trade agreement negotiations with Singapore, as well separately with Chile. But P5 was the conception, ultimately, that led to TPP, except that it would have been 20 years earlier, and it would have resulted in a very different situation in Asia than what we see today. That is to say, we would have been far better positioned relative to China and we would have been far better positioned relative to our alliance structure. You know, it's interesting, Charlene, I've had discussions with people, some people that argue that world events end up shaping leaders, not the other way around, and others see leaders shaping world events. And although I'm sure it's a combination of both, your example is a great one. And I can think of a number of examples where if a leader had stepped up and done something, which would have been difficult at the time, would have been politically difficult, it could have made a big difference. And that is a great example to reflect on. So tell me what gives you most satisfaction? What are you most proud of? Well, I'm very proud of the China WTO negotiation because that was a bear 
as you know, went on for many, many, many years, and it was a great deal for the United States. But what gives me the most satisfaction, I think of as people in places, to be in government, to be exposed to the people that you're exposed to, who ordinarily you would probably never meet, one example, the President of the United States, to travel the world relentlessly, as both you and I did, which is its own expansive experience. These things are part of learning. They're part of growing and maturing. They're part of the judgments you form later in life. And they are part of your general pantheon of likes and dislikes with respect to what you do or what you could be doing. So it's people and places that give me actually the most satisfaction. You know, that really resonates with me because as a CEO of Goldman Sachs, I traveled all around the world, met all sorts of people, had great satisfaction from doing that. But it was an entirely different feeling to land for the first time on foreign soil representing the United States of America. And it's a wonderful feeling to get to represent your country. And boy, you sure did that very well. Well, thank you. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.